right. Welcome to And Dave Hits the Stage. I am Dave. Mike couldn't be here. Um, no, no goofy jokes, and he's not stalking anybody. He literally couldn't get here for recording at the same time as I could. So today we're going to do things kind of differently. I have nobody to bounce off of, nobody really to, to, to argue my point. So I feel kind of free to say whatever the fuck I want. Uh, but we're going to be talking about something that he and I have been threatening for a while. And this is Desert Island albums. We're going to be talking about the, my, in my case, 10 albums that I would take to an island and forget the universe existed. It is going to be a good time. This stuff is, I mean, some of it's pretty old. Some of it's, I wouldn't even say anything's really new, but it's all really good. So this is what I consider to be the 10 best albums I've ever heard. And I cheat a lot on this. There are live albums, which are weird for a island setting, although it would probably help stave away the, the loneliness. Kind of like now, <laughs> but uh, they're very comforting. So without holding back, we're going to start with the first piece of sacrilege. And I do mean sacrilege with this. This is Judas Priest, but 98 live meltdown. Um, nobody likes these albums except for me. Apparently this is a very hard to find disc, um, almost impossible to find an MP3 format because Rob Halford's not singing on this. And this is where the sacrilege comes in. This is Tim Owens. Uh, this is Tim Owens in the height of the, uh, jugulator tour. So they decided to do a double disc, uh, run with, um, this amazing start, which is, um, the electric, uh, what is it? Uh, the Hellion into Electric Eye to start the album and then Living After Midnight to finish it. The standard Judas preset, but intertwined are the songs from Jugulator that he can do live and they are amazing. But the stuff that he had to learn, the Halford stuff, probably he had it memorized by then. The Halford stuff is down tuned and it's darker and almost, I wouldn't say thrashier, but because of the down tuning, it makes it so much so much richer in a different way. It wouldn't work with Halford's voice like that. It was definitely a unique time and unique tone for Judas Priest because they had just put out Jugulator, which is as close to a hard and heavy album. I think it's harder and heavier than Painkiller, but a very different style. It's m much less thrash, a little more almost, almost like speed metal in parts. I wouldn't say all the songs. Some of them are pretty soft. But uh, still, still dark and nasty. It's it's one of those. It's one of those really weird albums. Um, how do I explain it? It would be if you're listening to a live album, you expect a certain kind of upbeat feel to a live album. But they cover like Beyond the Realms of Death, um, Diamonds and Rust, and those songs are very different than the way that Halford would cover them or Halford would do them. They're his songs. Um, those versions are starkly opposite. And there's a reason I picked Live 98 Meltdown rather than something with Halford, and we'll get to that later. But for now, that is the first look at what we have on this island mix. I, I really, I, I would pick songs, but these albums you can listen to beginning to end with very little, I'll say very little interruption, if none. And with a double disc, that's very impo important. You know, the only thing that you should hear is the fade out from disc one and fade in from disc two. And the next one, another weird one when it comes to the references, Ride the Lightning by Metallica. You know, 
Summer 1984 came out, For Whom the Bell Tolls, I heard much later. I'm talking mid to late 90s. Um, it was the first song I learned how to play on bass. Um, this entire album was so different. And it etched into my brain differently than every other piece of music I had heard at the time. And for Metallica, the most important part of Metallica's history for me, it was really the Cliff Burton show. It was a time where his sound was so big and, you know, kill them all was kill them all. It was very rough and, you know, rough and ready, very aggressive, but it wasn't polished. This was the first polished piece of Metallica music and it was so well done and it wasn't quite as big as Master of Puppets. Like it didn't have that, you know, Master of Puppets is a little more grandiose and it has other amazing songs, but Ride the Lightning, it was, it's it's a summer album. I don't care what anyone says. It feels like a summer album. Like it's, it's still, even though it's aggressive, heavy and hard, it still has that calm breeze feel to me. And I know that's weird. It's kind of dichotomous, but it feels so good. It, it touched and it etched its way into my soul in a very unique way. And I, I think I might have heard that 96 or 97. So I was almost a decade late to the party. And uh, man, it changed. It literally changed everything. It's I can't see if I go track by track, it'll be for will take forever. Some of these, you know, one of them's 20 tracks. But in this case, um, Ride the Lightning has just the first four songs are really to prep you for what's coming ahead. And they just, it keeps building, building, building. And by the time you get to Call of Cthulhu, it's almost like the calm before the storm. And that piece really shows where they were going as far as the writing style. And then when you go to the next album, you look at Orion. It's it's classical music. It may It may be heavy and hard, but it is classical music. It is the quintessential classical style. And that was what Cliff was all about. It was all about the the form of a song, like the way it flowed. And that's why Metallica, up until his death, had a very specific direction. And that direction was very positive, especially to me. Like I I hadn't I hadn't been into like hard and heavy stuff at that point. And it was a great a great transition from normal popular music to something extreme or exciting. Now we're not, obviously it didn't go to death metal or anything like that, but this led the way for so many other bands. You know, we could go through model, modern metal bands and just pull out hundreds of names that are all inspired or some, in some cases, directly ripping off Metallica. Myself included. Every, every musician has ripped something from Metallica and same thing with Black Sabbath. They are not next on this list but I feel like they need to be brought up into that. We've taken something from them, but now for another controversial view, Bruce Dickinson's chemical wedding. The chemical wedding was done in the nineties. It was produced by Roy Z. And this is not the only time he'll be mentioned today. Uh, he's the producer and he played, I think guitar on this. Um, along with Adrian Smith, this was after, um, Bruce Dickinson had left Iron Maiden and apparently Adrian Smith had left as well and joined him in this band. And this was Adrian Smith's first time playing in drop D tuning, which 
for metal guys is more common than you'd expect. Like drop detuning is part of almost everyday life. Uh, we have all of Pantera stuff and most of like, when you look at like common, like common bluesy metal and the heavy, like the heavy, heavy stuff, it's either drop tuned or down tuned. Uh, drop tuning is one of my favorite things. Drop D um, is one of the best sounding tunings to me. The other funny one was when I was in a, I was in a hard, I wouldn't say hardcore band, but a harder band. Um, they played in C sharp. It was C sharp drop B. So the low for a five string, the low B was super low as normal, but then I was tuning all the other strings up and it was actually twisting the neck of my bass. Um, but rather than tune everything down and get everything nice and floppy where it sounds like, um, fieldy or a fart, I decided to just, you know, go with it and try something different. And it worked really well, but chemical wedding was that, was that catalyst for being able to down tune for Adrian Smith. And for me, it was Pantera, but this album, how do I explain it? And I'm rush. I feel like I'm rushing because I'm already like nine minutes in and I'm three songs, uh, three albums down. So I'm going to try to slow it down. So with the chemical wedding, it runs the gambit of Dickinson's usual writing history and uh, mythology and lore. And there's stuff from the church of England, like him, like a hymn from the church of England. And there are these songs about the alchemist and the, the tower, you know, stuff from, from the not Zodiac from the tarot. He's such a well-rounded writer. You know, if you look at Iron Maiden's history, the worst writing was actually when he wasn't there or when he was on his way out. Um, you can feel it. Dickinson, I don't think anyone's going to argue that he's one of the greatest vocalists in, in hard rock, heavy metal history. Absolutely. But we got to talk about the next one. And this is Halford, not Judas Priest, Halford. Live Insurrection, which was released in April of 2001, a full year and a half after uh, Resurrection was released, his first official solo album under his name. So Halford released this uh, 10 track, amazing solo album. He had released fight um, and um, two before this two was his work with uh, Trent Reznor of nine inch nails and uh, fight was another pretty good kind of thrashy album uh, two, two or three albums, but he pulled some of the guys from fight and uh, you know, uh, producer Roy Z and Pat Latchman, the uh, singer from Damage Plan. Well, he wasn't at this time, but he left Halford's touring band to join Damage Plan. So that is one huge step in metal history for me. But this was another amazing, like it was amazing live work and it was heavy and it was a different heavy than Judas Priest going live with um, 98 Meltdown. These were around the same time. I believe they did live. Uh, Judas Priest did live in London, which is a far inferior live album than both uh, 98 Meltdown and Live Insurrection. It was um, it felt poorly produced. It felt kind of tin, I wouldn't say tinny, but thin compared to the the production of these. You know, there was a huge difference in styles. This was when I heard this, I had already listened to the entire Judas Priest back catalog by then. And I was like. This is where Painkiller was going. 
and it felt like it was it was going in this direction. It was heavy, hard, fast, aggressive, but then still he could slow it down. There were songs like Silent Screams and um, The One You Love to Hate that were a little more stretched out. There's a duet on here with Bruce Dickinson. It's also on, on um, Resurrection, but live it's much more impressive because these guys were on tour together. It was Iron Maiden, Halford, and Queensryche. Probably not in that order, but, you know, Queensryche has a problem with everybody, so I'm putting them at the end. So, whatever. And that was with Jeff Tate at the time. But Halford basically said, I'm going to start my own Judas Priest with Blackjack and Hookers. He's like, I'm doing it my way. I'm doing it this way. And he did it. And the first two albums and the live album, so it was uh, Resurrection, Live 98 Meltdown, and, um, oh man, I always forget the name of the other one. I want to say, nope, not Happenstance. That's that's Fozzy. Anyway, there's another Halford album that came after that I only remember the title of one song, Golgotha. It's not, that's not the title, but it's an amazing album. And I feel bad that I always forget what it is. Um, then he released like one more, a Christmas album, and I think one after that, and they were all terrible. And I know he's, he's Halford, Hale Halford, but they are god awful. They are painful to listen to by comparison to Resurrection, Insurrection, and I'm, no, it's not the Crucible. My brain is just not letting it happen. And I don't want to stop to look it up because I know it's. I'm just going to be sitting here not talking and typing on my phone and it's going to it's going to come out horribly. So for now, we got an amazing. That's the first four, I believe. Let me see. Let's see. That's Judas Priest, Meltdown, Ride the Lightning, Dickinson, Halford. That's four. And uh, that's not good because we are almost halfway through the list. That's kind of rough. I'm definitely speeding. So let's talk about Sponge, Rotting Pinata, released in August 1994. This was one of the first cassettes that I ever had. And yes, kids, cassettes. I also ended up getting it on CD when I got a CD player. This is one of my favorite albums of all time, hands down. This is a beginning to end. It's a no skip every time. If it comes, if a song comes on, sometimes I'll just click on it and then go play the entire album and just listen and enjoy. Um, there's not one part of this album I would skip. Not one part I would go, eh, it could be better. It's perfect. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece beginning to end. Um, this was their best album. It is also their first album, but I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, they, they put out this amazing piece of music and they've put out a lot of other music since it may not have been as good as this, but it's hard to, to really grab something out of thin air and make this and then try to build up back to that again. You know, it's, it's gotta be an, an impossible task, but this was like, so 94, I was 13. So this was like preteen angsty, cranky Dave. Um, like I remember like plenty of like those weird nights where you just don't know what you're doing with life at 13. Like it fucking matters. Just sitting there going, what am I doing? Is it really, is it really, am I doing the right thing? Am I, I don't know what I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. I'm 42. Who the fuck knows what I'm doing? Obviously you guys don't cause you're watching this. Um, this also reminds me of, I was on a trip to Hershey park in like eighth grade. We went to Hershey Park, PA, 
and we were driving back and I was sitting next to this girl that I liked at the time. I'm not going to say her name because we're still friends. And she knew I liked her. It doesn't matter. But more importantly, we sat there and we split headphones. I had one earbud and she had the other. And we listened to this entire album. And it was, it's, it's an amazing. And when I went to switch the cassette, I got caught. And we weren't supposed to have Walkmans with us. And I got it taken away. And the rest of the ride was completely boring other than the conversation I was having with this, with this girl. Um, the Catholic school I went to, they were pretty strict about stuff. Thankfully there was no hitting in this case, but there could have been. Um, this was the same trip where, uh, the driver got lost on the way back from Hershey park. And we realized that when we hit the Ohio, Pennsylvania border, I don't live anywhere near, near Ohio. Nobody on this trip did. So they had to turn around and then, it took so many, so many extra hours of now rush hour traffic to head home. We got home at almost nine o'clock at night back to the school and our parents had been called by the school and they were waiting for us. But it was, yeah, everyone was freaked out except for me. I was more pissed that I was more upset and pissed that they took my Walkman. And then the teacher's like, yeah, I don't gave it back to me. But still, it was a rough day. But I will never forget. Like, even with the head trauma and, and the weird stuff that's happened to me, that is a day I'll never forget. Because forget Hershey Park. It was at a, I rode a water a waterlog ride for like four hours. You can tell. This was different. Like, the trip back was so much more like I got I got to know somebody better. And we ended up being really good friends. And we, we stayed friends all these years. Um, It was just like this mo perfect moment in time. And there are so few of those that we can say we can hold on to forever. And I love that. Um, I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that album and how it made me feel. And I still, when it comes on, sometimes I get the, the, the goosebumps. I get the hair on the back of my neck standing up. It's just one of those things that br immediately brings me back. And it, it touches my brain and my heart and my soul in such a different way. And then... Even with everything that's happened to me, this is still like one of the most positive albums, even though it's not a positive album. It is one of the most positive albums I've ever heard. And I love it. I, I, if, if there's any one album on this list that you pick to check out, Sponge Rotting Pinata, 1994. I think this was Atlantic Records. I don't have that written down. I just, I just imagine that little Atlantic symbol on it. I just looking at that disc six million times onto the, onto the next one. This is transatlantic Simpty S M P T E, uh, which stands for, um, Oh wow. My brain just stopped working. Wait, Stolt, Morse, Portnoy and Taravas S M P T E. The E is just part for Taravas. Simti is a pattern that they use to test MIDI audio and video. Uh, it's a standardized test pattern. I talk about that all the time. Like it fucking matters. I'm king of the nerds, but this album blew my mind. This was released in March of 2000. So I had already, already been introduced to and liked dream theater at this point. Hadn't heard anything like this before though. So I'd heard like dream theaters, um, Metropolis part two scenes from memory, which is a concept album. It is, strangely enough, not on this list, even though it could be. 
but it's not. But I think I, I, I have a good reason for that. The next couple of, the next couple of albums really solidify why that album isn't here. But this album blew my mind because I'd really heard nothing ever like it before. I'd gotten into Dream Theater, but it was, this is different. It's, it's soulful. It's on a different level of soulful. It, the, the, the four monster artists of progressive music coming together and making only five tracks, uh, four of which are originals. This is 77 minutes of music. Um, the first track is almost 30 minutes by, I think it's 30 minutes by itself. Um, we all need some blindness on here. Um, this was played at my wedding. I've said it now at least four times. Um, that song really stuck in my heart. And I'm going to say heart and soul a lot in this because these really are in a place in, in, in me that this changed the way I listen to music. This actually, at the time I was listening to like Testament and Slayer and Megadeth and, you know, heavy stuff. And this is the first time my brain went, oh man, we can really enjoy this too. We can enjoy the soft and the, the emotional and it doesn't have to be aggressive and hard and heavy. And it, it sits in the back of my brain differently. Like when we were talking about picking stuff for our wedding, this song came up so fast. My wife's like, oh, I wonder what we should do for this. I'm like, how about, and I played it for her and she, she'd heard it before. We were actually talking, this is funny. She was actually thinking about joining me for one of these. And the only reason she didn't is because she freezes when she gets nervous and she just kind of stares. So I was, I was going to be doing this and she'd just be sitting there staring at the camera. And I didn't think that was a good idea for anybody, especially her, because I didn't want her to feel bad. But what ended up, what ended up happening, she was like, oh, we could go over the mixtape you made for me. I went, oh, Jesus Christ, I made a mixtape for you. <laughs> I said it out. I'm Jesus Christ. I completely forgot. I'm like, ah, fuck it. It worked. And she's like, did it though? I'm like, I'm pretty sure it did. You're, you're sitting here with a kid in the back. I guess it worked. Best way to put it. Um, that I have to find that she says she has it. I, I don't doubt her, but I don't even remember what was on the playlist. It probably was a mix of transatlantic dream theater, maybe some ever gray and probably Evanescence Cause I'm, I was trying to get it and I got it. <laughs> Bing. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyone who didn't see that, I just held up my wedding ring <laughs> cause I'm an idiot. Um, there is a weird cover on here. Something I would have never thought of. Uh, the final track on this album is, uh, in hell twas an eye, which is a Procol Harum cover for anyone who doesn't know who Procol Harum is. Think Knights in white satin, which now that I think about it is not Procol Harum. Nope. That is not Procol Harum. I'm an idiot. That's the biggest problem. I forget who Procol Harum is. I forget what they sang, but it wasn't Whites and Night Satin. So ignore that. And I'm not editing any of this out because one, that takes a lot of effort. Two, I kind of want to, I kind of want to show you guys the process that goes on with me when he's not around. It is all over the place. It's a mile an hour. Well, mile an hour. It's a thousand miles an hour. The way my brain works, I say something and then I have to go back and fact check it in my own head. Back to, uh, transatlantic this album their first not not only their first but one of their best their their first two were perfect to me the rest of them are good 
but the first two are absolutely perfect. This and no, not my brain's just not having it today. Anyway, the first, sorry about that. A stupid alarm. Um, this first album, I sat down. I think Luigi walked up to me, handed it to me and said, listen to this. I'm like, what is it? he goes, shut up and listen. I just popped it in the CD player, sat down on the Bridget Hunter and listened to the whole thing. I think I was supposed to go to a class and just didn't. And I just sat there and listened to the whole thing. And it was just, I was blown away and it, it moved me and it changed. It changed how I listen to non-aggressive music. Like it, the progressive mindset was sinking in at this point, And I think this is what anchored it into me. And, uh, it really changed everything. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. It was so, it was so grandiose and yet so soulful and on a completely different headspace and different level than what I was used to that I felt that it was part of me forever. And it still is like, this is another one. Anything comes on, anything from this album comes on. I'm listening to it, possibly starting over and starting the whole album over. Check it out. Best way to put it. Now we're going to talk about another somewhat controversial pick. This is Queensryche Operation Mindcrime. Uh, released in May 1988. I was seven years old. I think I just turned seven. Yeah, I just turned seven years old. This was the first time I'd heard a concept album. Just a a piece of music about one large story. Um one main, one centralized character, one set of, uh, set of vocals for, you know, covering one person's thought process. This was introduced to me in the weirdest way possible. The brother of a friend of my girlfriend at the time gave me a MIDI track on a three and a half inch floppy disk and said, check this out. I took it home, put it on my computer, listened to it. And I go, this is really good. I went back to him I'm like, well, do you have any other of these? He had a whole bunch of MIDI stuff. I was, I don't know why I was getting into MIDI music. I don't know why he was into MIDI music. I think he was trying to learn how to play guitar and using the MIDI tracks with a guitar program, but it was, it was, in, it was intense. So finally I heard the whole thing. Um, it's 15 tracks and I've talked about the needle lies and, um, I haven't really ever talked about Sweet Sister Mary and and I remember now uh they're amazing songs. Uh Jeff Tate's voice, even on the live version, I I'm not in love with Operation Live Crime, I, how douchey the name is. Uh I'm not in love with the way it sounds by comparison to this. But this original recording was so good. It for rock for a rock album, it took me like at the time I was listening to Metallica, Megadeth, Testament, Slayer, this pulled me across into hard rock. And and I wouldn't even call this progressive, but more standardized progressive styles. Um, Queensryche was pushing that way for a long time and then kind of went the other way. Um, everyone knows them for silent lucidity and that's about it. But you really need to hear Operation Mindcrime. Um it it is a weird story. It is a great listen. The 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 you know the scene the the scenes that are in it. There are actual scenes with voice actors acting out parts are all very interesting because they are not Jeff Tate and not anyone else that we would hear on these albums. So it kind of pulls you deeper into the story 
than you'd expect. And I thought that was really good. I always thought that this changed. Okay. I talk about like how stuff changed, like hit me in a place in my heart and soul. This didn't do that, but it changed the way I listened to music. I listened to it for the composition at, at this point. I heard this in the mid to late 90s, 96, 97. So almost a full 10 years after it was released, it was, I'm always about a decade behind the times, even the way I dressed probably, I would have looked all right. 10 years. No, I look like shit 10 years ago. I look like shit 10 years before that. But, uh, when it comes to, I don't know how to, I don't, I really don't know how to put it into words, how this changed, how I listen to music. I listened to the story of the song more than I ever did before that. And I listened to how the music affects the lyrics. Cause there's a lot going on with the music and how it makes the vocals stand out more. Cause you know, the, there's the argument that more is less. And then there's the Ingve argument that more is more. And, uh, this to me, sometimes they're doing very little and getting so much across. And it always felt insanely good. I don't know. I, I think you guys are either going to love this or hate it. I'm already not happy with it. But that's because it's me by myself. No, nobody to make fun of me for feeling the way I feel about this stuff, which kind of helps because I can really get away with murder here, like bringing up Dream Theater and their July 1992 album, Images and Words. It's their second album. Um, it's not my first Dream Theater album, but it's my absolute favorite. This was, I mean, I heard this probably sophomore year in college so 2000 99 2000 somewhere there and it it changed everything uh kevin moore the keyboardist for dream theater is my favorite keyboard player for dream theater and this has him on display like very little else he was only in for the first three albums um wait yes because after that they went to uh derek sherinian then finally uh jordan rudis and it's been jordan rudis ever since but his playing was a mix of progressive and then he had the heavy and soulful parts and the soft and he knew exactly what to play where. Kevin Moore also did guest stuff on everything under the sun. Amazing keyboard player. This was before Mike Portnoy would ever think of leaving the band. He was a main contributor writing and producing. Um, they had a They had a great producer for years, did wonderful stuff with them, but it's their playing that really stands out here. Um, I remember seeing the video for pull me under the first time and seeing that the singer was wearing a napalm death shirt, which is weird for a progressive band to have a death metal band's logo. I always thought that was really cool. And then it also reminded me of the, um, tribute to Cliff Burton shirt that Jim Martin wore in the Epic video. Just how my brain works. There are three very distinct styles on this album. Um, there is a pure progressive kind of, I'll, I'll call it keyboard driven sound. There is also a specifically drum led sound that I don't even know how to describe, how to describe that where the drums kind of guide the, the entire song and kind of not only set the pace, but set the tone, which is weird when you think of a drummer setting the tone for a song think of yyz and stuff like that that's the best way to describe it but and these guys are heavily influenced by by rush 
and Yes and Deep Purple and all the guys we normally talk about when we think of progressive music. But what I did really like is there is a song on here called Learning to Live. It is a, and this is 1992, so this is in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. This is a very heartfelt piece of music that I loved. I don't know who it was written for or if it was written about anybody, but it's something that has sat in the corner of my mind for years. Between this and Wait for Sleep, they are these two amazing pieces that they feel like they were written to comfort somebody going through something horrible. And to me, that that's what music should do. It should comfort. It should lift up. Even if it's hard, heavy, aggressive, fast, death metal, it should bring somebody some sort of solace and peace somewhere. Like death metal sometimes even calms me. It's a fair amount of time it calms me. But, we, you know, we, we talk about what we love and what we listen to and how it makes us feel. And this makes me feel pretty good. I can't believe I'm only 33 minutes in and I have two bands left. I kind of, I kind of think that I'm screwing this up, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to do this twice or not. I doubt it because one, I don't, I don't think it'll have the same energy if I do it again. And I, I honestly believe that the, the energy that we put in, in the moment is more important. It's more important than what we're saying, you know, yeah, this is pretty melancholy. I don't know. Fuck it. Let's keep going. Uh, Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath. Released in February of 1970. This was a kick in the face to the hippies. The the guys who were entranced by the Summer of Love, the 69 Woodstock. While Woodstock was going on, these guys were recording this. This was seven tracks of rock and roll. And it's it, it was divided differently, but it's in the end, it's seven tracks. The title track is usually credited for being the first piece of doom metal that's out there. It's a perfect example of a no skip. This is, this is the reason I started playing bass. Geezer Butler, hands down. Like I can, I can't, I'm not that good. Um, there are very few people I'd ever say are as good as Geezer. Um, he was a different bassist. He felt different. His style was different. Maybe it's because he started as a rhythm guitarist and moved to bass and learned the bass as a bass instrument rather than trying to play guitar on it. But there's a, a definite different feeling on this album. And this is so bleak and dark and and aggressive and soulful. And yeah, I know I said soulful when it comes to Black Sabbath. I know that's almost sacrilege. It's It's crazy when you think about how it all changed it all changed um, after that day. Like the day this was released, I don't think the world musically was ever really the same because it started affecting people. The second they heard this, you, you either loved this or you hated it. It was one or the other. There was no, there was no in between. It was this, it was this wave of change for you. And if you got it, you got it. And if you didn't, you thought this was garbage. And if you thought this was garbage, you can go to hell. You know, even Mike, Mike, who does not, does not like uh, Ozzy anymore. And I, I heard his story and I agree with him, but it doesn't, it doesn't exactly change what I feel. So just, if we look at the first 
The first track, starting in the rain with the thunder and the church bell, it's so, so dark and bleak. And yeah, I did pull up the the album list, uh, the track listing on this because I needed the, um, the full list of songs, including the stuff on that were listed as one, like because you have Black Sabbath and the Wizard to start, and the Wizard with the harmonica solo, which is barely an instrument. I like I like Ozzy, but it come on, let's be honest, it's a harmonica. It's a it's a it's a corn cob. You might as well be eating corn. Then you have Wasp Behind the Wall of Sleep, basically an NIB together. NIB. Or Nativity in Black, if if you go that way. Amazing. It it's it's a piece of musical history that anybody who hears it immediately is like, oh yeah, that's it. Let's do this. They start shaking their head. You start bopping up and down. It's it's perfect. And then you have Wicked World, which is a really good song. And then A Bit of Finger, Sleeping Village in the Morning, which is the weaker part of the album, but it is 15 minutes of solid rock and roll. You know, we talk about this being the start of heavy metal, but it really was the start of like darker rock and roll, like aggressive, I wouldn't even say aggressive, just a different tone of rock. Something that we never thought we'd hear at, at the time. If you listen to everything else coming out, the heaviest thing I think might've been Inagata De Vida by Iron Butterfly. And that's because they were drunk. You know, that's, that's as heavy as it got at that point. And then this, and then everything after this was different. Now I'm not saying other bands bit off of them. We did. They do. They will forever. But then, you know, there are bands that they, that came up alongside them. They're practicing in the same, in the same area that are very different, but still heavy. And that comes from, I think it comes from where they grew up. You know, Judas Priest came from a very similar, a similar place. Actually, they practiced in the same area, the Bullring, which was this, like, they called it the Bullring. It was a, it was a mall that was kind of circular and they had a, a practice space there. Um, when, uh, when they did Nativity in Black, the tribute to Black Sabbath, um, Halford and the remaining members of Black Sabbath, um, Geezer, uh, Tony and Bill did a recording of the wizard together and called it the Bullring uh, Brummies, which was a reference to the Bullring where they recorded, where they hung out and where they practiced. There were bands like uh, Deep Purple and they all came from the same area. You know, the and what, 10 years earlier with the Beatles, they were from these similar like steel town, you know, British steel towns, post-war you know, they had nothing. So this is the music that they, cre they created. They either created blues or rock and roll or in the end, this. And it changed, so drastically changed music history forever. And it it's, Geezer's playing is mesmerizing to me. I've seen him play live. It's it's a blur. Like I'm, I'm so enthralled with the moment. Sometimes I forget what I'm looking at. It's, inc it's incredible. And then... You know, Ozzy over the years, it's different. It's never quite the same. You never get the same feel as you get from Black Sabbath. And even Black Sabbath with their final lineup with Tommy Cafudos on drums wasn't quite the same. He's a great drummer, but he's no Bill Ward. Seeing him, seeing them with Bill Ward was one of the few things in life that I will say I get to cherish forever, that I get to hold completely differently than most people.
because I was lucky enough to see the entire original lineup of Black Sabbath. Kids today, people in the last 20 years haven't seen that, and they never will. Those guys aren't doing it again, and some of them aren't in the shape to do it at all. But now we got to talk about my last one. 40 minutes? Fuck, I'm going way too fast. The last one. I put this last for a reason, because I fucking meant it. This is Fate's Warning Still Life. I've talked about this before. It was released in October 1998. So I actually didn't catch this that far, a couple of years after it was released. Um, this is the reason this list was made. This is the, the absolute reason this list exists. This is two discs. I know most of these live, live albums are double discs, but there's a reason for that because they have a lot of music. A good live concert is a three-hour event, and you can't fit three hours of music on a one-disc deal. So the first disc is A Pleasant Shade of Grey, just the one track, divided into 12 tracks for easy listening, but they um, it's one song. It is one entire piece of music, and it is completely different than everything else uh, I've ever listened to. It at, even Not at the time, even since. It, it changed everything for me. It, it sits in my, in my collection alone, above everything else. You know, you may not love it. You may, you may not find what I find in it. But I know, I know it's perfect for me. It, Luigi introduced me to this in a way that I will never forget. And I can always thank him for, um, he handed me this after giving me that, that mixtape had two tracks for fate's warning on it. And they were from this album. Um, he said, don't bother with the recorded version. It sounds boring. He goes, try this. And I took it, I took it home. I listened to that first disc and I was in love. I was in love with music. And at that time, I think, I was pretty, I was pretty down in the dumps. I was pretty sick. I felt like garbage and, uh, it kind of re reinvigorated my love of music. Um, that was the first disc. I, for a while, I didn't even get to the second disc. I just listened to that first one over and over again, just on, not, I wouldn't even say on a loop, just ne like never stopping. Like it's, it finishes, start it again, or, you know, back, you know, halfway through, back it up to the beginning, start over. Um, eventually I got to disc two and it was another 53 minutes of music, including, uh, the ivory gate of dreams track one on, on disc two is a 21 minute song. And it wasn't, it wasn't like anything I'd heard before. I've never heard a band sing or play music for 21 minutes up until this point, really. And not with this level of acumen. They're so amazing. It was, it was jarring how good it was up until this point. Like I heard Pleasant Shade of Grey and you forget it's so good. You forget it's a live album until you hear the crowd doing the, you know, the random chants and woos. You forget it's a live album and it's so good. And I don't care if it's not meant for a desert island mix. It is perfect. The desert island is the perfect place to sit and listen by yourself to something this grand. I would listen to this at sunset every day if I could. If I ever got to see sunsets during the day, I would love, I would love to listen to this every day. Um, every version on here, every version of every song on here is different than their original in a very specific way. They have, uh, 
different feels. They're, they're slight, they're different emotions. Um, in a pleasant shade of gray's, um, case, it is so, so vastly different than its original that when I heard the original, I thought something was wrong with my, at, at the time, my Discman or my phone. It was cold, processed, tinny, thin, emotionless. And then I heard, went back to this. This is warm and alive and emotional and a raw nerve. And it's, it's crazy when you think about how it sounds compared to its studio version. You know, you can imagine a studio version being slightly less, less emotional or warm than, I have no idea what that was, uh, slightly less emotional or warm than, than the, um, studio. Well, the studio being less emotional or warm than the live. But when you look at something like this, they're so, so very different. Where it almost sounds like a completely different, uh, completely different band. If it wasn't the singer sounding similar in the studio, I, I, could, I could argue that it might even be a different band. Like, a, to me, the still life is the definitive version and definitive sound. So the original sounds like a, a shoddy cover by comparison. It, it's cold clinical, uh, cold clinical and a little bit, um, mechanical and it feels sharp on the, on the ears. It just doesn't sit well. Um, there is a track on disc two that is called monument. Did not think I was going to like it when it started. And then by the end I was enthralled. Um, the, the European and Japanese version of this album includes a cover at the end of the second disc of the Scorpions uh, in trance, which if you haven't heard the Scorpions, what are you doing? If you're listening to hard rock and heavy metal, listen to the Scorpions and not just big city nights and uh, winds of change. Listen to the other stuff. It's amazing. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff. I could have put a Scorpions album on here. I didn't want to. Uh, just cause this, this list sits so much better for me. It sits in my heart more than anything else would this. I'll say something else about this entire list. Um, if I could get a vinyl of every one of these, I would want to be buried with them. Not that I want to be buried, but you could bury me with them, you know, Egyptian style, just, you know, put my belongings in a box and throw me in with it. Uh, it's, it's so amazing. Um, Joey Vera from Fate's Warning. This is his first live album. I don't know if he was on the recording of, I don't think he was on the recording of the original version of A Pleasant Shade of Grey. I think their original bassist, who's, I think it might've been Joe DiBiase was on their original one. And it just, just doesn't sound the same. His playing less is more. He's got this amazing style. He slaps in some places where it feels appropriate, the best way to put it. It feels right. It feels smart. Everything about these albums feels better than every other album I've ever heard. But in this case, every song on here feels better than every recorded version I've ever heard of these songs. And I've seen some of these songs played live in person. And there, there's a moment in time that this was captured. That was absolutely perfect. And those perfect moments, I think, are what make live music worth it. 
Um, I haven't been going to live stuff as I've gotten older just because I have a family and responsibilities and I work usually when stuff is happening. But I, I do miss it. I miss that that feeling of live music and that one perfect moment in time. Um, experiencing pain of salvation with my now wife when we were dating and people... Oh, was it? No, we were, we were married at that point. Were we? No, no, we weren't. We weren't married. We were together and we had a child, but we weren't married because we don't do anything in the right order. Um, when we were watching people like slow dance and hug and kiss to songs about infidelity, I live for those moments. I live for off time headbanging where it's, it's syncopated rhythm and people are just not getting the, the rhythm right. <laughs> I love it. I love stuff like that. I love looking around the crowd and finding the, the, what we call heavy metal bingo, finding the guy with the battle vest and the, 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 the suicidal hat and the mom with the wine glass. You, we look for all the weird stuff you see at metal shows. The guy, the guy with the suit and tie that just came from work. And there's nothing wrong with these people. They're part of the music scene. They're part of what they love, but we see them at every show. They, we see these things everywhere. And I always find it funny that you'll see them at every show. They're not the same people, but you see the same things. And it's always fun to point that out when you have somebody like my wife, who I can sit and do this with, uh, and Mike, when, when Mike and I go places and point, Oh, look at that. looks like a bologna, a whole bologna wrapped in dryer lint. Those things are fun. Not for the person we're making fun of, but you know, fuck them. Those live events, those live experiences. That's why live albums ended up on this list because they, they capture moments in time. Judas Priest, I remember this tour. I remember seeing them. And it was it was not as good as this recording, but it was really good. Um I remember seeing um I remember seeing Iron Maiden and Halford and Queensryche. I think that I think that was at the Garden. And it was eye-opening at how good his voice was. Rob Halford's voice live is was phenomenal. I saw him a few years later for the next album, which I still can't remember the name of. Now I'm going to look it up. But I saw him at Lemoore's, which was an, it was a, it was a very weird experience because it's such a, it's a place that I knew so well and I could not, it is crucible. God damn it. It is crucible. The name of the album, the uh, Halford's second uh, studio album. Um, it's such a weird place. Cause I had been there hundreds of times at that point, I would say millions, but that's completely crazy. But I've been there at least a hundred times by that point. I'd seen symphony X perform live. I had seen, I saw man award fucking Lemoore's. It was crazy. Um, they had a lot of secret shows there, like bands, big bands, biohazard and guys like that would come through under different names. Twisted sister every year used to do a show as bent brother. Uh, I only saw it once, but it was crazy. It was great time. And the place was packed wall to wall, wall to wall with smelly metal heads. And that's, that's a thing, but, uh, that's how we lived. And for this list, I have to thank guys like Luigi and Sean and this guy, Giuseppe Randazzo guy from high school. They handed me stuff. They handed me music and loaned me CDs and got me into stuff that I wouldn't have gotten into on my own. I wouldn't have discovered a lot of this on my own. I feel lucky that these guys were able to share something with me like this. You know, Halford was kind of a discovery, but Judas Priest was through Judas Priest was through Sean. 
Uh, Metallica was through Sean and and uh, Joe Randazzo. Um, Sponge, that was, I think I found that because of MTV or like Video Music Box back in the nineties. Uh, Transatlantic, uh, Dream Theater, um, Fate's Warning. That's all Luigi. And there's not much you can say except thank you guys. Cause if I had never heard this, I would be lost on that desert Island. I'd be lost in reality. This stuff has brought me through so much, um, in life, uh, pain, joy, sorrow, triumph, all of it has been fueled by this music. These 10 albums are just like the litmus test for everything else I listen to. And there's so much more. And I, I would, this could be 20 albums and it, it had to be cut down from 25, but I had to do, I just wanted to do 10. And these 10 are just, they're so, so good. They're so enthralling. The Chemical Wedding by Bruce Dickinson, it literally, it's something I could put on and literally do anything to. I could build a computer. I could I could sit and noodle on bass and doing something completely different. And it sits there and I can I can feel it here while playing. They don't even have to be the same thing. So what I'm playing doesn't have to be the same thing. It's just something that re- reverberates in my heart. Uh, Sponge Rotting Pinata is I can lay in bed and throw that album on and just lay there and drift. The first song, uh, Penny Wheels, has that sound of ru- like water on the on the on the rocks, and it just it sits there. I sit there, and we just we we veg out to it. It's something I could listen to every single day. Uh, Transatlantic Simpty is a, a perfect for driving, perfect for um, background music. It is in incredibly talented writing. Queensryche Operation Mindcrime is, in my eyes, the perfect concept album. Um, Dream Theater Images and Words, one of the most perfect introductions to a band. And then the actual 100% perfect is Fate's Warning Still Life. Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath is the start of the style of music that I've grown to be in love with. And Metallica's Ride the Lightning is the evolution of that style into a an art form that at that point, nobody would really take seriously. People took it like, oh, it's heavy, heavy, heavy. And then all of a sudden it was heavy and classical, heavy and and thoughtful and melodic. And, you know, there was so much going on. You know, this this list is is more than the sum of its parts. It's everything stands on its own. Everything is built from it. I don't even know how I'm going to catalog this. I might pull and make a list of like one song from every one of these albums just to give a taste of what they are. And if you don't know them, please check them out. Dream Theater, Queensryche, um, Transatlantic, Black Sabbath, Fate's Warning, Sponge, Halford, Bruce Dickinson, obviously, Judas Priest and Metallica. You know, these are strong, strong bands, strong writers. Some of them, you know, Dickinson from Iron Maiden. And if you don't know Iron Maiden, what are you doing? Go back and listen to even the Paul Diano stuff, even, even the first two albums. Rock solid. They're very different. They're very punky by comparison, but man, they're good. Um, all of Metallica stuff up until I'll, up until Saint Anger, I will give a thumbs up. Uh, load and reload. I've changed my mind about over the years. Uh, re-listening 
at my age, I'd be like, eh, it's a little, it's a little rocking. Eh. But it's good. Um, the stuff after St. Anger is just, it feels manufactured. It feels like forced and stressed. And I don't, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, there are other stuff that, there's other stuff that I could have put on here. Megadeth, um, Euthanasia. I know nobody loves it but me. Um, Slayer, Haunting the Chapel is the first, the first metal I've ever listened to. Like literally the first metal that I was ever exposed to by somebody else. That was Joe Randazzo in high school. Um, Danzig won, even though I despise Glenn Danzig. Um, I love that album for a different reason. My friend Sean uh, got me into it and it has been part of my life ever since. And thankfully he is part of my life. And that kind of brotherhood, you can't, you can't ever hope for. It just kind of happens. There's stuff my friend Lou introduced me to that actually funny story. I got a Lou story, not Luigi, my friend Lou. So Lou, great drummer. Also like Luigi, a great drummer. Um, and I were in a band. So it was Lou, I, and this guy, Anthony. And uh, Anthony, we hopped in his car. He met us at the train station, picked us up. And he started playing something from his CD player. I'm like, oh, 98 Live Meltdown. And he went, how do you know that? I go, I've heard it before. He goes, yeah, but there's no music playing. It was the crowd sound that I was able to pick out. And apparently, I can tell the difference in live albums from the crowd noise. <laughs> and... Lou has brought that up. He goes, how do you know that? I go, I don't know. I just heard it. I know it. And it's stuck in my head. It's not a talent. It's, it's a curse. <laughs> Cause then I hear it. I have to say it out loud. And then I sound really fucking weird like now, but I normally sound really fucking weird. So you guys are kind of used to this. I'm surprised that I got through this list without saying something really inflammatory. And now I really want to, <laughs> you ever just want to yell cunt <laughs> here it is. No, I'm kidding. Um, before I go, I want to say thank you to everybody who's been helping us, everyone who's been supporting us. Mike the Angry Wizard, my partner, Mike Rossi. Um, oh, I can't wait for us to record again. This is awkward as shit. Uh, this is going to sound awkward as shit, and I really don't care. I really want this to be out there just so he knows that I appreciate what he does when he's here. He said the last time we were here, he goes, oh, you bring all the equipment, you set everything up, you do the editing. What am I doing here? You are the other half of this. And I am very appreciative of what you are here and what you are to this, to this podcast and what you are to our friends. You know, you've, you've been awesome with this and you've understood my fucking crazy and dealt with it. And I'm glad, and I love it. And it's been an amazing time. My friends, Lou and Luigi and Joe, Roxy, Joe, and, um, John, um, I'm going to get to your, what I, what I'm calling the list in a minute. Um, the guys who've been saying they've listened to us, my, my friends, um, people at work apparently have been listening to this. I don't know what you guys think of me, but oh, I really don't care. I didn't care then. But at the same time, thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, I want to talk about Asist. That's Roxy Joe's project. New music coming all the time. New, his style is all over the place in the best way possible. You got to check him out. Uh, YouTube, A-E-C-Y-S-T. Um, next we have Luigi with the Weege and, uh, Radio Free Tibet. He has two groups, both pretty out there. Um, recently their last show, they actually kind of intersected where their, uh, their, uh, trumpet player got on stage and did some stuff with them. 
Radio Tree, Radio Free Tibet's trumpet player got on stage with the Weege and did some stuff. I really wish I could have been there. Um, I felt bad that I couldn't, but I had to work. Unfortunate. But uh, go to Bandcamp, check out Searchlights. It is amazing. It is in my regular rotation, and it is totally worth it. Um, check out their stuff on on. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them, I believe, on Facebook. Uh, Luigi Gennaro voiceover for Luigi. Um, he's a voiceover guy. We're going to talk about um, Unworked Apparel. John. John, he's always been great. He's been pushing and, and supporting each and every one of us over the years. He's been just a solid dude. Just super great. I love these guys. Um, I want to talk about Fall of the Albatross, their new album. And I got this wrong last one. It's The Right, R-I-T-E. Um, check them out. New album's out. Uh, find it on the internet. I don't know where exactly. I would guess Bandcamp, but you could even try. Um, I'd say search YouTube Music, Spotify. Um, if, if I forgot anybody else, I'm so sorry. Uh, you can check us out. I am basher.exe. Mike is noogs29 on Instagram. Uh, we have hit the stage podcast on Instagram, hit the stage podcast.com. Mike and Dave hit the stage on YouTube, uh, where you'll be able to see me butcher this in real time. Well, not in real time. Thankfully, this is not live, although it might as well be. It's that bad. Um, but check us out. We'll be seeing you real soon. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye.